Well, good morning, family. It's a great day to do church. Come on, Breeze. Let the breeze come. <laughs> I uh, was uh, the 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 seven thirty service. They um, they're the, you know they're the the bright and bushy tail uh, group at seven thirty and and this morning. But you're getting a little bit breeze here now, or is it just me? I'm getting, you're not getting a breeze there? I see some of you waving, shape, yeah. All right. Um, we're, we're, we're taking a look at great faith. Everybody say great faith. Yeah, some of you didn't say it. I know who you are. Great faith. Great faith. We're, we're actually taking a look in the scriptures where there are two locations where Jesus made the comment that, that, that a person had great faith. Now, having great faith, what must have been something that was rare because, in fact, when he commented on faith, he more commented on people who had little faith than he did with people who had great faith. He oftentimes would say, oh, you have little faith. You know what? Uh, you know, you, you have tiny faith. You're, in, you know, you, you don't have much faith. You know, when, when the Son of Man comes, he says, will he find faith on the earth? And so there's, a, a, he was shocked at times by people's lack of faith. But on two occasions, he was shocked by the person's extraordinary faith, the amount of faith. And that's what we're taking a picture at, we're taking a look at um, in the scriptures because these stories in the scripture are not about the person's great faith. Obviously, he wants to communicate to us how we can have great faith. You can have great faith also. You want to say that to somebody? You can have great faith also. You really can. And, and, and there is a, a process, and we're learning from these stories a little bit about faith, a little bit about how our faith can grow, and how we can have a greater faith at least than where we are right now. And uh, so would you help me by praying? Let's ask God for help. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that we can open your word. We ask that you would, uh, I ask that you would anoint me and help me as I uh, teach, I pray you fill me with your Holy Spirit as I share your word. That, Lord, truth will go, will, um, Lord, just come forth from my lips and, uh, and touch hearts, Lord God. And, uh, and help us not to just hear your word, but, Lord, to be doers of it. That, Father, our lives will be transformed and changed into, uh, into more and more of your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Now... <clears throat> The story is found in Matthew chapter 8. And so if you want to go there, chapter 8 and verse 5. And I'm always, um, whenever you're teaching a portion of scripture and you know that there are people and there are a lot of people here that you know these, these portions of scripture. Some of you grew up 
knowing these portions of scriptures and you hear, have heard them, read them over and over again, the challenge is always to bring something that is a little bit more, a little bit different, a little bit added to without changing the text. I mean, you don't change what the Bible is teaching, but to emphasize a certain thing that helps you a little bit in, in the process so you, you grow, you know, you can grow in it and you'll hopefully want to listen. And so because you go over these things so often that you forget, you know, you, you many times if you've been reading the scriptures for years, um, it's, it's not fresh. Like for those who are, um, have, are just opening up the scriptures for the first time and you're, te- you're coming across these texts, you're kind of envied in the fact that this is fresh to you and alive and, and all of that. It doesn't have to be dull in any way. There's always more in the scriptures to learn. So for all of us. But, but the, the thing I want to see here is the, the marvel of Jesus. I'm, I'm going to, I'm kind of, um, you know, I'm going to tell you the story's end, so, um, you know, just for your alert, just, just so that you won't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to ruin the story for you. Um, it turns out really good. Um, the guy gets his prayer answered. There's a miracle that happens, and Jesus commends this guy with great faith. Okay, that's where we're going. And, and how he gets there, but there's a, there's a, a a, a phrase in the text, when Jesus recognizes this guy's um, faith, and all of a sudden it's like Jesus sees that this man has great faith, and he says, the, the, the scripture says about Jesus, in fact, in the New King James Version, it says, he marveled. He marveled. He was astonished, is another way, one of the versions used that he was Jesus was astonished just think about this think about what it takes to astonish an all-knowing all-present you know uh, all all, um, all um, you know all-knowledgeable all-present eternal God what it takes for him to be astonished what would astonish him is there anything that, well, this actually astonishes him. This man's faith, it says, just home. And, uh, and Peter and John and some of the disciples live there. In fact, if you ever go to um, Capernaum, you'll actually find the, uh, you know, Peter's house. In fact, they really believe, and I, I think archaeologists are pretty convinced that they've actually found Jesus' home. Uh, now, in fact, it was under the place where they, where Peter's house was, and um, or in that same place, and uh, it's pretty amazing. And I think we'll hear more about that as that unfolds, as there, uh, you know, more discoveries on that. But uh, Jesus had entered Capernaum, and a centurion came to him. Now, a centurion was a soldier over what would you? How many would you think? Century, centurion, a hundred. Okay, so he was over a hundred soldiers. There'd be a hundred soldiers that he was had oversight of. And what you can take from that is this: he was a he he had to have been a disciplined individual, right? To be a leader over a military force of a, a hundred soldiers, he was 
probably kind of a, we would call him a man's man, you know. He's just kind of that guy. He, he's a leader. He's a war-proven soldier. He, he probably in battle uh, proved himself. And so he, he, he was brought up in the ranks um, to this place of being a centurion. He, he would have been also... Because he's a Roman soldier, he's not, he's not a Jew, he's not, a, um, a, 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 he's not an insider, he's not, he's not part of the chosen. He is an outsider. And all of us started out as outsiders. Everyone, if you are a follower of Jesus, you started out as an outsider. And that's the thing about being a Christ follower. You are an outsider. <clears throat> Everyone is an outsider. You, have, you start there. You say, well, I grew up in church. It didn't matter. At, at some point in your life, you had to come to the place where you recognized your own failure before God, that you were sent a sinner and needed a Savior, and you responded to Christ. It might be early. Like my wife, I think she was five years old. She actually wept. She had that sense that she was a sinner, very young in life, really kind of rare. But then responded and, and gave her life to Jesus, had a breakthrough, felt the Holy Spirit, had a vision. I mean, the whole, the whole thing. But even her, she, everybody, you might have grown up in church, but you had, you were an outsider at some point. And when I came to Christ, I was 19 years old. I was an outsider. And I, I, all of a sudden, you know, the truth of God's word came to me and I responded and Jesus saved my soul. But we're all outsiders. We can identify with this guy. He was an outsider. Luke says this, that he, uh, Luke adds this to, to the story, um, that, that the Jewish leaders, the Jewish elders begged Jesus earnestly saying, the one whom, uh, this guy who's coming, to, who's coming um, he deserves Jesus for you to answer his request. Because he loves our nation and he's built us a synagogue. So this centurion, even though he's a Roman, he obviously was, you know, he, he, um, he was probably stationed there um, in Capernaum. And of course, um, he he got to know the Jews. He got to know their their faith. He started to believe in their God. That's that's what you get from this. That that he he started to believe in their God, and he financed, built the synagogue in Capernaum. So he did that synagogue is a synagogue Jesus preached in. That Jesus went and, and, and taught in that synagogue. And if you go to Israel today, the foundation of that synagogue is still there. You can stand there. You can, I, I had a wonderful, I've had several times, I've, I've had wonderful prayer times right there in that synagogue that this man built that Jesus spoke in. So that's who this guy is. And the Jews are saying, Lord, he, he deserves this. You know, he's a good man. He's helped us. But, you know, being a centurion, he probably was kind of a self-made man, right? He's, he's one of these guys who 
you know, he's, he's, uh, he's worked his way up. He's kind of successful in that realm. Uh, and he's probably pretty self-sufficient. And that is oftentimes the nature of leaders, that they have kind of the self-sufficientness about them. And that can be a hindrance as well as, you know, I mean, there's a good quality and there's a hindrance to it. Because if you're self-sufficient, you tend to be the kind of person that Jesus is your last resort. You only come to God, you only pray when there's no, nothing else, you know, it's the last thing that you're going to do. You, I've, you've heard people say, you know, like, like, it's gotten so bad, the only thing I can do left is pray. The last, just, uh, it's so horrible. It's gotten so bad that all I can do is now pray. Well, prayer shouldn't be the last thing we do. It should be the first thing we do. And yes, there we go, amen. <clears throat> the, 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 the people who in fact have coming to Christ as the last thing or the people who are going to struggle the most during trials and difficult times. If that's the last thing you do, you're going to struggle. Those who go to Jesus in good times and in bad are the ones who know how to rest in God and it becomes second nature to them. So when trials really hit, they're already, they're already in the resting place with the Lord already. They've already, they, 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 they aren't running to Christ because now some, something difficult has happened. They've been running to Christ every day. That's what they do. They spend time with God every day. It doesn't mean that difficulties and tragedies don't have their weight on you, but you, you have already learned to rest in his arms. You've already learned to sit with Jesus, and you've already learned, and that's a pattern in your life. And it doesn't come out of a franticness, of a, out of fear. It comes out of this is the place where I go daily to find my peace and my rest in God. And this man comes and it's, it's, it's weighing on him. It says here, he, he came to Jesus pleading with him. So it's not a casual prayer. This is a passionate, heartfelt plea. A passionate, heartfelt plea that's going on. He cares. Now, this servant... Actually, Luke uses the word that is the, uh, the word for slave. And so here is a slave that he's coming with a compassionate, heartfelt prayer to Jesus for Jesus to heal his slave. He cares about his slave. In those days, listen, in, in this time, you can, you can read writers uh, that, you know, like starting, starting with Aristotle actually talks about the slave is nothing more than a tool that you don't, you shouldn't care about or have compassion on a slave because a slave in those days was nothing more than a tool, like a man's, you know, going into his garage and grabbing his hammer. And if his hammer breaks, he doesn't cry over it. He doesn't have compassion. He doesn't care. That was the normal attitude. That was not the attitude of the centurion. He comes pleading. And quite frankly, in a, th this is a, a, an attitude that, that you would not find. He comes pleading 
and has compassion. Listen, when you have compassion for someone, when you care like that, you're never, clo- you're never more like Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is a man, was a man or, you know, he's he, as, on earth as a man of compassion. I've heard, I've heard preachers say, you know, the miracles of God, they're gone now. They don't happen. They, they ended because the only reason that Jesus did the miracles was the proof that he was, in fact, the Messiah. That he, that was proof that he was God and that he was Messiah. And that's the only reason Jesus did it. And the only reason the disciples did it was to prove that they had been witnesses of the resurrection. And that's the only reason that the miracles happened. That is not true. Not only does there no proof that the, the miracles ever were to stop, and they haven't, but the fact is that Jesus oftentimes would heal people and say, don't tell anybody. He wasn't doing it as a proof. He was doing it because he cared. And oftentimes the Bible would just say, when Jesus looked upon them with compassion, he did a miracle. He had compassion on them. It was, it was, drawing out, it was drawn out of his compassion and out of his love that he did the, the miracle. Sure, it was a proof that he was in fact the son of God. Sure, it was a sign. But that was not the only reason Jesus did miracles. That, that, that's a false uh, 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 you know, view of, and, and an unbiblical view of why Jesus did miracles. And he did it with compassion. He did it because he cared. And so he pleads with them saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And so as he's carrying this burden, he comes to Jesus and Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Isn't that the word you want to hear? I mean, you come to Jesus, Jesus, my servant is, is, needs healing. And Jesus says, well, okay, let's go. Well, let's, let's go take care of this. I'll come to your house. We'll take care of it. Now, Jews don't come to Gentiles' houses. Not in those days. They, 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 that, would, that would make them unclean. If they walked into a Gentile's house, they would be considered spiritually unclean. They would have to get approval to come back into the you know, synagogue or come back into the temple if they were going to the temple area because they were unclean and they had to, be, they had to have, go through ceremonial cleaning, cleansing to be able to, to worship again. So this, that would be something that no Jew would do and Jesus doesn't care. See, Jesus refused to embrace the cultural divisiveness of his day. He refused to just buy into it. And he just, he, he, it, it didn't matter to him. He's going to go because God loves the centurion. And so the centurion answered kind of a strange thing. The way he answered and said, Lord... I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. I mean, it seems like he's kind of hindering the whole thing. Jesus said, I'm going to come, heal, heal your, your slave, heal your servant. And the centurion says, I, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, for you to come to my house. What are you doing? I mean, don't slow things down here. What's going on in this man's mind, in his heart? He would have normally 
as the Jewish leaders thought of him, normal, uh, normally a person would think, well, I am deserving. I've done so many good things. I've done so many good things for my community. I'm a good person. People like me. I'm a leader. I'm successful. Normally, he could consider himself a, deserve, a, a deserving person. There, there's so much that is taught in our day that I think is over the top. And this, the, the whole thing of self-esteem, I think, is way overblown. I, I think we, we take it to a level, you know, like the whole thing, the, the thing that will fix everybody if they have good self-esteem. And yet this man says, I'm not worthy. And actually I do believe in self-esteem, no, but, but I believe in God-esteem. I think it's better. I think when, when you get God-esteem, it takes you to a whole, a whole healthy place. And for this man, he understood, maybe among his peers he would be considered somebody great, at least to an extent. But compared to Jesus, probably feels a lot like John the Baptist, you know, the greatest of all the prophets. He is greater than all of them. Says, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He, he understood who he was. And I think you can't, you can't come to that until you understand who Jesus is. You really have to understand who God is. And the, the smaller God you have, the more worthy you think you, can, you are that you can stand before God. The bigger God is who he really is. The more you see God for who he really is, you fully understand that there is no way that you and your own righteousness could ever stand before that holy God. So if you think, you know, I'll be, I'm pretty good and I'll do okay because I'm a pretty good person and, and all, then you don't understand who God is. You don't understand his holiness. You don't, do not understand his greatness. You're not overwhelmed with the extraordinariness of God, the uniqueness of God. And so, there are four things I want to just, you to go home with today. Four things about this man, about great faith, about the character in this man that we can apply and see in our own life that will help our faith to grow that will become more people that maybe are more like this with great faith. The first one is great, great faith requires humility. And you see that here. It says, I'm not worthy. It requires humility. It's not, not relying on its own personal, personally earned worthiness. When... when when an individual is humble, they are mo most fully, truthfully aware. Okay? Most fully, truthfully aware when a person's humble. Because, and because there's true humble, biblical humility is not, first of all, the humility of the worm. It's not the I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm a nobody, I'm worthless, and, you know, I'll, I think I'll go eat worms. I'm just, you're not, that's not true humility in the biblical sense. But it also is not the false 
Um, human self-worth that says, I'm a great person. You know, I'm, you know, I like me. I'm just a great person. And if I just need to like me more and I just not, like, need to be happy with who I am and all of that either. But true humility is a true view of yourself in relationship to God and in relationship to others. Let me tell you how true humility operates in relationship to others. There is no... There, there is no comparison in true humility with others. When you have true humility, you do not compare yourself with others. In fact, the Bible says this. He who compares himself with others, let me, let me um, use my own Greek word on this one, is stupid. The, actually, the word says is unwise, but God is much kinder. But uh, that's his nice way of saying, you're really dumb to take and compare yourself with other people. Uh, for one, you know nothing about the full history and everything about that individual, both in what God's dealing with their life. There's just so much you don't understand. You can never properly compare yourself with someone else. You'll, you'll always fail in, with true comparison. So it doesn't work. You'll either make yourself think you're better than them, that just causes pride, or you make yourself feel worse, and that's just kind of that false view. It, the, the, the proper view is there is no need to compare. There is nothing to compare. That's God's job, and God will do and decide on each and every individual where they stand. But true humility then looks at God and says, based upon who I am and my failure before God, I come before God humbly. I, there's no reason for me to ever stand before God with pride, right? And the scripture says that that's the reason salvation came the way it, came. it comes. It comes through faith so no one will be able to boast. That's what the scripture says. There no, one, you, no one's gonna get to heaven and says, man, I was pretty good. You know, I have a story. And when I was young, woo. I was amazing. No one's going to say that in heaven. The only thing we'll do is boast in God. That will be the only boast we have is in him. See? And so, but here's also the value of this. True humility also recognizes what God has done for us and made us children of God. I mean, that, how amazing is that? So that humility that says, I didn't deserve it, is also the humility that says, I'm a child of God. I'm the apple of God's eye. God loves me with all of his heart. Talk about esteem. What, where can you get esteem like that? The God of the universe thinks you're just amazing. He loves you. He cares for you. You, you see that? That is a healthy, proper way of viewing your world and viewing God. And anything other than that is just so unhealthy in our life. And so this man, he's showing a humility and, and there's a risk factor in him coming. Listen, he comes to Jesus and he humbles himself. He, 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 he you know, pretty much begs God to heal this servant of his and he could have gotten shut down and he could have been hum humiliated right there in front of all those people. 
He does it in front of all these people. And Jesus could have said, listen, you're a stinking Roman. Get out of here. I'm not doing anything for you. You don't deserve a thing. He, he was risking that possibility. Of course, I think he knew a little bit more about who Jesus was maybe to do that. But there was always a risk of humility, of, of being, um, you know, humiliated. And so he comes already humble as, as he approaches the Son of God. And then he makes a statement, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. And I think that's one of the things that just amazes Jesus. Because he's not only saying, you, you know, I'm not worthy that you come into my, my house. But he's, he's, he has faith, he has this trust. Lord, if you just speak, you have to see, okay, some of you have read this a dozen times or, you know, a hundred times, whatever. But you understand that this was shocking to the people who were hearing that? Now, people clamored. You know, there, there were other shocking things, like the woman who touched, she just knew. If she could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed. That was shocking. People didn't know that that could happen like that. And, and she had this, you know, this confidence, and it happened for her. But, but this was shocking because no one had ever approached and even gave the, the, the concept that Jesus could just, speak the word from a distance and heal somebody. Where did he come up with that? This was brand new stuff. The jaws of the disciples must have dropped. Why? He has to touch you. But see, the, 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 the fact is he said, speak a word. What word? What was God's word? Your word. See, great faith, here's point number two, relies on the power of God's word. Relies on the power of God's word. We, we try to find God's word wherever we can find God's word. And of course, it's, I'll tell you, it's always, it's always in the book. It's always in the book. And you can find God's word in the book. And you get God's word and you, you apply it to your life. You find the promises of God and you hold on to it. You know and you say, you know, he sent his word, the scripture says, and healed them. That's the word. That's the word. That's God's word. I take God's word and I hold to God's word. And I want to speak God's word. I want to proclaim God's word. I want to hold on to God's word. And this man had a trust in Jesus' word. When Jesus would say it, that was, that was enough for him. How could he be assured it would even work? He himself had not seen that happen before. But he had made an assumption, and this is why he made the assumption. Verse 9 says, For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. He, he had um, a pattern in his life. He had learned, he has, had an experience in his life that that experience translated into his faith. His experience was, I understand authority. And that's what he's saying. 
Jesus, I understand authority. I understand what it is to be a person who's under authority. I understand that. I understand what it's to be a person who is over, you know, authority. I have authority. And that's where he was. Jesus also could, he, see, Jesus was under authority. He said, whatever I see the Father doing, that's what I do. I do what the Father tells me to do. That, he was under authority. And then he was in authority. He spoke with authority. And when he spoke, things happened. And this, this man has uh, understood this principle of authority. He uh, operates under authority. And he understood Jesus had authority. And how he understood that was by faith. And he understood authority because he was under authority. And there's a principle here of un being under authority. God places us under authority. And our th the authority over us is to teach us to be faithful to him who is the ultimate authority. We learn. In fact, the first thing he does is he places us under authority by placing us in a family with parents. And the parents have the authority over us. And... But we have a problem. The problem is our sin nature. And so anyone who has ever had a toddler in your home, you know that even though you're an authority, it doesn't really mean much. Right? One of the first things a toddler learns is no. You notice that? Where do they get that word first? Well, you probably told them no. And they learned it and they use it against you. Because they don't want to be under authority. They want to do what they want to do. And, there are th and they learn very early on in life that they have a certain level of control. And they'll use it against you. You know, when you tell them, okay, I want you to eat. And if they don't want to eat, they're not opening their mouth. You know, you, th there's a level of control that they want and all of us want. We have this issue in our life. It's our sin nature that causes it. And we struggle with authority and we grow up. And people say, well, you know, wait till they're teenagers. That's when they really go through it. Well, they go through it all their whole life. And they're growing toward it, right? And they get to that place and then, then and at times. And they use that and, it's, and it's, it's against them. It works against them. It works against us. But what God does is God gives us this authority to teach us something. Because if you cannot, now I want to I emphasize this, if you cannot submit to the authority God places over you that you can see, you will not submit to God who you can't see. I'm going to say that again because some of you need to really get this. If you cannot or will not Submit to the authority God has given you that you can see. You will not submit to, to, to God who you cannot see. Our, the learning process is to learn to be submissive to the authority God has placed over you in your life. And the Bible talks about that in our life. We learn to, to submit to authority. There's a scripture, an interesting scripture that Jesus uh, Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 16 and verse 12 and it says if you have not been faithful in what is another man's who will give you what is your own 
In other words, as you submit to somebody, if, if you're not faithful in submitting to someone else's dreams and helping someone else along the way, who's going to give you your own dreams and your own desires if you're not willing to help? There's a process. Every great man that I personally know, and I don't know everybody who's had success, but every, per, every, every great man that I personally know that's had success, where there's an authority in their life, they were at one time under authority, and they were faithful to it. You see? I believe, in fact, the only reason that I have a, a, a place right now is because I was submitted. My father-in-law was my, was my pastor, and that was a challenging thing. I have a few uh, that I have compassion for in our church right now. So there's, there's but, but, but he, he was, my job was to make him look good. That was my job. And to serve him and to make him look good. And he did, did things, quite frankly, I didn't agree with. Oftentimes, I didn't agree with, and he was right later on, I found out. But at the point, I just knew he was wrong, and this was just a dumb thing to do. And, and it was a lot of work, and it seemed like I, w I had to make all these sacrifices. But I had to make him look good, and that was my job. That was being under authority. And, and God, there, there's, a, there's a process, and this man understands that principle of being under authority and being in authority. And having that principle working out in his life where God-given God authority is given so that you learn the principle of following that which you can see. And then, and then, and then lastly and, and fourthly is great faith sees what is invisible. And you see this in his comment. You know, I'm under authority. I understand what it's like to be in authority. I say to this one, go. Now, how does that relate? And, and what is he saying to Jesus now. Okay, saying, Jesus, you don't have to go to my, my household. I know what it's like to be an authority. What is Jesus, does he think Jesus is an authority over? We, we really don't know. But we know this, he's assuming Jesus is over something that's invisible. That's what we do know. See, faith sees, great faith sees what is invisible. It, it doesn't see, it sees what is invisible. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. And that's what great faith does. Now, now G, he might have assumed that Jesus have, has authority over the elements, which he did. He might have assumed that Jesus has, had, had authority over the angels. If he had heard about the angels by then, probably possibly, that that was the case, and that's true also, but that Jesus could speak a word, and the angels would go. They would be sent. The, the, the Bible said in Psalms 91 that he's given his angels charge over him, the, the scripture says over Jesus, the Messiah, to keep him in all of his ways. Jesus could call on angels, and of course he did. He never, you, you don't see Jesus talking to angels and, and directing them. I've seen people say, well, you need to tell your angel to go do something. It's not biblical. You don't go telling your angels what to do. You pray to God and God releases the angels. I do think angels hear prayer. I think they hear you praying, I should say. I really do. I think that's one of the reasons why 
verbal praying is so important. You're not just praying in your head. Most prayers in the Bible are spoken. You, know, you understand that, right? Most prayers. There are a few, like, like Nehemiah, who... Um, but there, most prayers were, were verbalized in some way. Mumbled sometimes like Hannah, but verbalized. Maybe there's a, a, a reason for that in, in that connection. But I'll let you th- ponder that one for a while. But verse 10 says, When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So Jesus marveled. Just say he marveled. He marveled. I want you to get that in his, your head. He marveled. He marveled at this man's faith. And he says, I've not even seen it in all of Israel. Who's he saying this to? With all these disciples that are watching this whole thing happen and all the Jews that are around. He says, he says listen, I've been all over Israel. No one has faith like this guy. He's a Gentile. He didn't grow up with it. And then he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? The Gentiles. This is proof of it right here. Right? This is proof right here. There's all of, it, all of, all of these Gentiles, a few Jews here too, but there's you know, all these Gentiles who you've, you've come in. Jesus is saying, listen, faith is not only for the chosen, for the Jews, for those who've been given the, 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 the command of God, the word of God. Others have faith too, and this man has faith greater than anybody I've seen in all of Israel. And, and he says, and there will be those, and I take this literally, that will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You know, I'm just can't, I just can't wait to have lunch with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They can just sit down with them. Well, let's, hey, let's have lunch together. Why not? You think that's strange? You think that's, that can't happen? We're going to spend eternity. Don't you think in some, at some point in eternity you might bump into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And, and, and if you ask them for lunch, they can't say, hey, I don't have time. Right? I, I, I take that literally, but I know it also means just that the, the kingdom of God is going to be filled with Gentiles. So, uh, he says, and, and he, so he says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the most painful scriptures in the Bible. The sons of the kingdom. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Jews who have rejected the Messiah. They're not going to be in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says there'll be many. They'll be weeping in outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're the ones who heard it, but they didn't believe it. They got the word, but they didn't believe it. This centurion got the same word. He heard it, but he believed it. One of the, one of the, the things that captures my heart most, more than anything else is my care and my, my responsibility and my love for the children in our church. The, the, the kids who grow up in the church and they hear the stories. But I'm always aware of the fact that just because a kid grows up in church and hears all the stories doesn't mean they've attached faith to it. 
And that's always what you're, you're contending for. You're always praying for. You're always wanting. See, when I came to Christ when, at, you know, 19 years old, there, was, there were 70 of us. It was part of a surfing community, and we all meeting together. We, there was a, a guy doing a Bible study. The guy was really a, a cultic. He was just crazy, but we knew nothing about the Bible, so it just seemed good. He talked about God, and he opened the Bible, and he was twisting the scriptures. We didn't know anything about it. But when we found out what had happened, there were a couple people in that group that had uh, known a little bit about God and the scriptures, and one of them's relative invited us to their church, and we ended up there, and that's for the first time I heard the gospel and heard the truth, and I responded to Jesus, and, and there were 70 of us. I mean, we were, we were ragtag, you know, surfers, and we didn't look so good when we showed up, and it was a whole different world for, for that poor little church there that was, you know, pretty churchy, and, uh, but they embraced us. They had the love of Jesus, but what they also had had, it was a youth group that were filled with kids that just grew up in church. And those kids, quite frankly, weren't very on fire for God. They had heard the stories over and over again. It was kind of boring to them. They, you know, a lot of them were just, they weren't saved, a lot of them, quite frankly. And we came in, it was an embarrassment to them. My wife tells me, because she was at least saved, but she was in the group, she said it was embarrassing. She says, all you guys just loved God's word. You were there at church every time the doors opened. You were on fire for God, and we were growing up and grew up in church, and we couldn't. We didn't have the, the heart to do anything. We, didn't, we, were, we were dead. And, and many of those people in that youth group never, you know, as far as in, in the time frame that I've known, that they've not, you know, served Jesus at all. Many of those people who did come in that didn't know the Lord did. Quite a few of them actually are pastors and have gone to different places in ministry just simply because the freshness and the newness and the love and, and this is kind of this story. You have people who heard the message but they got inoculated to it because they didn't mix it with faith. And I'm not saying people who grew up in church are all going to end up in that category. It's actually not true. Some of the greatest leaders in the world in, in the faith are people who grew up in church some of the greatest, but I'm just saying there's a risk. The risk factor is there too. That if you don't ever mix it with faith, it's incredibly dangerous. And I'm speaking to someone here, either here or, or online right now. I believe it's speaking to, and you need to, you need to, to evaluate your faith in Christ. And Jesus said to centurion, go your way as, as you believe, so it will be done unto you and his servant was healed that same hour how, how many want great faith how many want great faith yeah I go like this I want great faith great faith Lord great faith great faith we have our responsibility God will do the rest we trust him trust his word we believe. Amen. Amen. You know what this heat is all about? There's somewhere you never want to go. It's a good reminder. Amen. <laughs> Let's rescue some people. Are you ready to worship Jesus? Can we do that? Let's worship the Lord.
may have been more ready than we were, but we are ready. You guys, if you want to stand with us as we close, you can up front. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed me yet. for Bible study. God bless. I see you move. You move the mountain.